Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Michelle A. Berard LLC and Urban Book Editor. And I am super happy to share this hour with you, where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel and has grown onto our own platform, but we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guests on the March 22nd show, Christian life coach Andrea T. Martin. You can connect with Andrea at her website, www.andreatmartin.com. Andrea shared ways we can transform our lives, moving from our painful past to bright futures. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the March 22nd show, at the Somewhere in the Middle podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is such an important message, guys, and we really need to share it with the youth. But it's not just for the youth. Even we grown-ups need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I am really happy to introduce tonight's guest because she is creative and she has created a dual business career for herself, which is just another example of her creative spirit. Creative entrepreneur Tracy Ariel lives a seasonal life. In the summer, she helps Montreal residents grow and buy local healthy food and purchase compost and handcrafted items through the nonprofit solidarity cooperative called Cooperative Abondance Urbaine Solidaire. During the winter, she encourages family historians, solopreneurs, and small business owners to read and produce notable nonfiction through books, courses, and private coaching. So I am here with Tracy Ariel. Tracy, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barad. I'm so happy to speak with you and with your listeners, Michelle. It's just an opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, awesome, awesome, awesome. Or you may or may not have heard that I start my interviews with two questions and really jump off from there. So okay. are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Tracy Ariel, who are you and how did you become who you are today? <laughs> who am I? I am a seasonal creative entrepreneur. So in the wintertime, I spend all my time at a computer writing uh, stories uh, for journal for, as a journalist outlet and uh, for individual clients. And I run a business called Notable Nonfiction. And that, that's the winter. And then in the summer, I turn into an a urban agriculturalist. So I'm in the greenhouse planting things and at the farmer's market and uh, outside and using my muscles, which is actually really cool and has helped me. Uh, my health is much better since doing that because I'm no longer sitting in the same position for 12 months of the year. Wow. Uh, so uh, that and uh, how did I become 
what I am, that's a, uh, that I am, uh, as you know, Michelle, I'm a Canadian. And so when I decided to uh, turn my business into a sort of a two businesses at one time, uh, seasonal enterprise, uh, I felt more Canadian because now when it's really snowy and miserable, I stay inside. And when it's really bright and sunny, I'm outside. And so uh, that, because of that, I started a podcast called Unapologetically Canadian, where I'm exploring what it means to be Canadian, what it means to actually uh, have a national identity if you choose to have one anyway. And I'm in Quebec, so not everybody here considers themselves Canadian. So the uh. conversations are really fascinating anyway. And uh, I think because I'm also a genealogist, I'm also fascinated with the things that we were before we were even born because of choices our ancestors made. Mm. <laughs> so That's interesting. Isn't it fascinating? It's like, because I always wondered where that phrase that you are, um, you know, your, your parents' children came from. And it's true because where you're born and what you, the opportunities you have are connected to the choices your ancestors made. Um, and even your health, you know, now that we know what genetics are doing and how much um, environment and, uh, and uh, all sorts of other things uh, influence your genetics, it, it, it's true. Basically, the choices you have are based in part on what your ancestors did. Okay. And obviously, I think that you have a choice to be who you to become something beyond that anyway. I mean, there's no mm -hmm. you're not you're not tied into that alone, but that's where you start. Well, and yeah, that doesn't negate, uh, you know, human capabilities to change and shift and grow. No. And, you know, it can it can can give an idea of why you are where you started out, huh? Exactly. And it can also give you, um, because if you don't look into it at all, um, when you do look into it, it's kind of shocking that some of the things that you thought were uh, your own individual traits turn out to be things that um, your ancestors uh, also did. And, and you know, it, it's actually a family trait rather than a, a personal trait. And so I think that's helpful, too, because it's really hard to, uh, to live with purpose if you can't identify what uh, how you're you know what what really, what creates an individual and and so i think that's really I mean, for me i find it just fascinating well now you know you you've got me on this uh kick now about the genealogy <laughs> aspect because i didn't even realize that 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 was something you were heavily into so give me an example of a family trait versus maybe a personal trait that you've come across um all right well uh, so, for example, um, this uh, in the summertime, I run farmers markets, and in looking at my ancestors, I have discovered that since coming to Canada, pretty much in the 1500s, there has been in every generation of my personal family tree a retailer, somebody who was either uh, owned a hotel or ran a depreneur or all these kinds of things all the way down. And so, my comfort with dealing with people and with um, with creating a small economy in a marketplace is actually something that we have been doing, you know, over generations. And so I just found that really particularly interesting. And it doesn't say, because I'm an introvert. <laughs> so the fact that I actually want to do this kind of thing that people see as a very extroverted activity, um, I get power from the fact that I, I feel like I probably have some of that trait in my genetic background. See, now you see, I look at that in a really, in a slightly different way, because I wonder if there's not a spiritual component to that. That ends up being the way that I look at it, where I'm like, um, is yeah, it, maybe. You <laughs> Why know, not? is it possible that, which, you know, so I have interesting friends from all different kinds of <laughs> backgrounds. And one of them said to me at one point that when you're, I, and I, I hope I'm interpreting this correctly, but basically when you're dealing with kind of the ancestor stuff, you're actually dealing with almost like past versions of yourself that are giving oh, you fascinating. Our information now. And so that makes me wonder, well, maybe it was just you. <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure because um, the, the research that I'm doing, I'm actually, I write stories about different ancestors the way a journalist would. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I, and, and I'm covering many different 
um, people within a line. So I cover not just the, it's actually quite hard to cover the females. And I don't know if you've ever done gene- genealogy, but there's not as much information about the females in your line as there are the males. And so um, I'm covering, you know, both siblings. And because I'm an amateur historian as well, I tend to cover people who aren't even necessarily in my direct line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, although I think there is definitely an element of spirituality in there because um, sometimes, and I'm a part of a group of nine women who do genealogy stories together, and we sort of feel like we're captivated by an individual because that person is calling out. Ah. <laughs> so it's like there's, you know, we find, we discover things that the family didn't know about, or we, you know, something that needs to be present that I get. And so it doesn't, when I think of the spiritual side of what I do, I I think it's that maybe there are elements that need to be discovered that and maybe there are spirits that are sort of helping direct us in that in that way. But I don't feel like the the people that I'm studying are all parts of myself. I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. the way I write, because as a writer, you can't help but be biased in that way. And that the stories that I write probably read as though they are parts of myself, because that's just how I interpret what they've done mm-hmm. right from their point of view um at the same time i really think they had a distinct uh individual they were a distinct individual and a sync being on this earth and part of what i'm trying to do is bring them back to life in one way gotcha so it's a different but it's not you know when uh, as as a person who helps other people explore nonfiction. Uh, it, I don't think there's any right answer. Well, Whatever. yeah, I, I think that's going to remain to be seen. I just think it's a really interesting thing that you said about, you know, kind of bringing them back to life in a way too, though, because you're, you're, you're reaching back to the past to understand the present, but that does kind of bring that person back to life when you do that. Yeah, exactly. And it also makes uh, things that we're struggling with now um, much more personal um, and because because you have you can't help when you look back at seeing sort of tri- issues within history that you tend to set aside if you're just trying to run a business and live a life every day. Right. <laughs> and so it does give you a bigger um, a bigger look at who you could be if you choose an abundant side of man's mindset, which I find very difficult. An abundance mindset is not something that I find easy. Anyway, I've taken that on as as the kind of mindset that I want to encourage in myself, but it's not natural to me. I tend to go to scarcity and victimhood quite easily, (laughs) unfortunately. I think that's because you grew up in the frozen north, dear. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) That, as someone living in Southern California, I can see how you say that. (laughs) Well, and also keep in mind, I'm from the deep, deep south. So, yeah. Yeah, that's another thing that was, that's kind of an interesting concept was, you know, so the friend who said all these interesting things to me, he is, uh, by education, a historian and an attorney. And so, you know, he has a mind like a steel trap to to do that attorney stuff, but also he has, he has the soul of a historian and, and, and looks back at, at history and, and analyzes it. And he talked about this in terms of, uh, the way that um, white people came to Africa and how the Africans were kind of like, oh, yeah, come on, we got plenty. Come hang out with us, <laughs> generally speaking, you know. Yeah. And and uh, white folks coming from colder places were like, oh, they got plenty of stuff. We need to take some of their stuff, you know, because <laughs> you know? we need their stuff, you know, and, and that complete not understanding of one another because of those different perspectives. Because if you come from a place where, you know, during, during the winter, there isn't enough and you have to kind of hoard things to during the good seasons to make sure that you can eat during the bad seasons and all that, that shifts your outlook so that when you go to different places, you're like, okay, what can I take back with me? Cause I might need it when I get home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Storage versus, um, and 
actually even in attitudes that's true yeah. too, because what I find in the north you, and even if because like, I really love the outdoors and so if you plan a trip in the north you have to plan how you're going to keep warm you have to plan to the last detail how much food are you mm-hmm. going to take because you can't carry that much right. what exactly and so you have to be very anal and very planning oriented and very um organized and you have to be uh, active in doing that mm-hmm. and then now if you go to a vacation in the south which I happen to love <laughs> <laughs> you know you spend a, a, a week or a month in in, in hot you got to learn to actually relax and yeah and sleep for part of the day and really take things slow and not actually stress about stuff and the less you can think about the better you are <laughs> oh and it gets it's and i think that's really interesting because you can see that in different cultures you know like i don't know if you guys have this in canada but we talk about cpt down here in the states colored people time uh <laughs> never heard anything like that. I don't think that would be politically correct here. Well, I don't know if it's politically correct, but we do talk about it. And we, well, I mean, I don't know if other people talk about it, but we do talk about CPT, you know, you know, versus, you know, white people time or something like that. So if you're planning on having an event, you know, let's say I want to have a dinner party. If I tell you to be here at eight, really, it's probably safer to be here at nine. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like the cultural difference between my husband's family and and my family because I'm um, my husband's family is originally Portuguese, and it's like you don't arrive on time or you're just you're, you're seen as uh, um, you're you're actually interfering with the setup. <laughs> yeah, you're interfering with the whole process, man. You know, I mean, if you show up at my house too early for an event, I mean, I may not even be dressed yet. I'm not saying the food won't be cooked and all that. I'm just saying we still have things to do around here. Yeah, so, exactly. But I think that that reflects itself in a lot of ways in, in, in culture and in families. And like you mentioned, Portuguese even to, you know, we'll say what, French, you said you're in Quebec, so... Yeah. Uh, and, and I know and you I have, have your challenges with that. <laughs> I, I have um, Aboriginal heritage too. And one of the, okay. stories, one of the stories that I was looking at, um, it was amazing because I found some documents talking. I'm from the Red River area in, uh, in Western Canada. And uh, they were, I found some stories about how they were really, uh, the, they were particularly judgmental because all of these families were helping each other out so that by the time that, so that they would, none of them would have enough money or, or, or incentive. And it's like, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, so basically you're looking at the, this entire culture and thinking that because they share right. <laughs> and because they live communally, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And a similar type thing when I was, I was reading the Poisonwood Bible. I don't, it, that's a book from like the eighties or nineties, but I was reading the Poisonwood Bible uh, a few months ago. And it's really good, and it's about, it's fiction about this uh, family of missionaries that went to Africa to, you know, proselytize, you know, and, and spread the religion and whatnot, and how they could not understand why it took so long to make decisions in the African cultures. And it's because they wanted to form consensus. So oftentimes a decision could be delayed by months or even years because if there was one person who did not agree, it would cause conflict in the community. And how the Africans didn't understand the concept of voting where the majority rules because to them it's like that doesn't make sense. It means you're always going to have some people who are unhappy. Right. And that causes problems. That causes conflict. And why would you want to have that in your community? And I thought that was just a really interesting thing. It's the same kind of concept, you know, where you have, you know, communal-based societies like Native American societies and whatnot that thrive on cooperation versus majority rule, which may be necessary in, again, in societies where scarcity is an issue and you have to figure out how you're going to allocate resources differently or more quickly than consensus would allow. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I didn't think about it like that. Actually, taking that over into um, a business sense, um, it's actually, uh, I know now consensus models of governance are really um, something that's important to people. And I think that um, 
that could help looking into the historically how people made decisions in order to make that more, um, to make it work better because people are always looking for efficiency as well as uh, something other than hierarchy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how you can reconcile that because like for me, I know that one of the challenges with um, organizational things you know, where I've been in leadership in different areas has been, I tend to come at things from a very American business kind of way, American uh, (laughs) kind of of business way. Let's just get this done. Let's just knock this out. And, um, and very big on making decisions decisively. And, and I don't want to say quickly all the time, but really decisive decisions. You know what I mean? Like not, not kind of putzing around with it. You get your information, you evaluate your information, you make a decision as opposed to, well, let's see how Jane feels about this. Let's see how John feels about this. Let's see how Lou feels about this. And I'm not sure where the twain meets. And you've, you've worked with cooperatives. You work with a cooperative. So mm-hmm. it, I would presume that's more of a consensus-based type environment. Uh, it is, although it's one person, one vote. So there is, uh, when there is conflict, you can actually take a vote. Um, but yeah, I think the model is much more consensus oriented. And actually, because I'm in Canada as well, our whole form of government is actually um, more parliamentary than it is um, Republican uh, in the or liber- Basically, the um, the difference is uh, is in, is is there's a more round table process. <laughs> right. And, but what's interesting is that in, uh, I, I admire some things about the American system that we don't have, which is there's an intense uh, value for research and public and public transparency, which is, uh, I think, you know, we have the positive of consensus, but we have the negative of, of lack of transparency. A lot of things happen in committees that never, no one ever, ever saw. Oh. <laughs> that can call that can cause problems too. So it's um, on a political level. I think it's really interesting when you take that down to um, individual actions. I, I think the the challenge is creating an environment where everybody can be free to say what they need, what they want to say before a decision is made. Right. And I think that's, as an individual business person going into an organization or even running my own business with, with individual clients, that's the kind of, of operating procedure I try to create. I'm not always successful, mm-hmm. but when I am successful, I, I find that you get a better result. But it always takes a little bit longer. If you can do it properly, it doesn't take, too, it doesn't take so much longer. Well, what kinds of things, as, as a business owner, do you find you want to get that input on and and from whom precisely is it from your clients is it from other people you have working with you what is it that well for example if i'm working like i'm i'm working with one person who we're doing a book together and so um we've gotten to the stage where we've got most of the research is done we really just have to get it finished and we're if I, I could take one mode of operating, which would be, okay, we're getting it finished and just give a whole lot of deadlines and um, we're going to, this, this chapter has to be done now, I need your answer by then or we're finalizing this chapter. You know, I could be a bit of a dictatorial coach, you know, because I'm, I'm actually assisting. It's not like I'm, you know, we're doing it together, but um, I'm sort of keeping the project moving forward. And instead, what I've done is actually backed off and given questions um, that I want him to answer because until until he gets back into the project on the, in his own way, it's not going to work anyway. My dictatorial sense is not going to because what I need is for him to add things from his perspective that I don't have. If I had everything I needed, I you know I could finish it without necessarily bugging anyone. <laughs> so by creating and so by asking these questions. Um, I'm hoping that what I'm doing is creating a conversation between us that can happen in its own good time. Well, and you know, that's interesting because, you know, I work with clients also on their books and mostly from the editing perspective, typically uh, less uh, from the writing perspective. But what I find is that clients will just dip out. (laughs) They'll just like, yeah, they get busy and they just disappear. And my approach has typically been, 
well, they disappear for a couple of months. I'll let them go, but then I'll reach out. Right. And not, you know, say, well, we did have this deadline or what have you. It's not, I'm, I tend to not be deadline oriented when it's an editing project if they are not deadline oriented, right? Right. Um, yeah, you're taking the lead because you are working in part. I mean, you're working with them, but it's, for, you know, it's for them. They're paying exactly. <laughs> exactly. So if they're not ready, I don't typically push. But if they get to pass a certain point, it's like, okay, this project is over. Yeah, you, know, you can't continue. I can't leave you on the books for three years, dude. Uh, <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, the project is over. I've forgotten about your project now. It's three years later, you come back. This is like starting over. I've, I haven't even, I haven't looked at your project in three years. So, I mean, I don't know if there's a way to get clients back into work mode when life has taken them away or they've decided that they're going to focus on something else for a while. Are you finding that that question thing is working for you or are you finding that? Well, yeah, it's, it's working. Actually, it's working to a point. I don't know if it, oh, I guess I'll let you know if it works completely, but it is working to a point because all of a sudden there's movement. You know, I keep saying that, you know, so because, because I asked, because I asked questions that weren't linked to the project itself by itself, I asked, I asked specific questions linking what we want, what we agreed to, he wanted to accomplish with this project. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes, I, I'm hoping that that's what will make the difference because every person goes into a project with a, with a desire and the dip that you're talking about as a writer, I feel it too, because you feel like you've done everything that was fun or meaningful from the project and then you just have to finish it. Right. <laughs> and that finishing stage is, is hard because it's just hard work and it's no longer, you're not, you're no longer, at least you think, until you get into it, you, you're no longer discovering anything new about yourself. And so my questions are designed actually to make him realize that working on this will actually lead to a new discovery. Mm -hmm. And so for things like, um, what, do, who do you want to be for the community based on this element of our project? Who, how do you, so that it's all presentation oriented yeah. so that instead of so that you can actually discover things because you haven't if you had if you were finished the book the presentation is finished but you're in the stage where you're actually just presenting your material that and so that's what I want him to focus on gotcha. let's how do we present and then and if you're not good at presenting you know if you're or if you're really good at presenting but you've never presented in this format before it, there is some learning there so I'm going to extrapolate from what you're saying and tell me if I'm I'm correct here it sounds like you're perceiving each writing project or each of your projects with your clients as an opportunity for them and you to some extent to grow and to learn and that sometimes when the projects get stalled that it's because that feeling of growth and learning has stalled or stopped yeah yeah because to me, every if you're writing nonfiction, mm -hmm. you have to put part of yourself in it, and you can't put part of yourself into anything without growing. It's just not possible. You're either going to do it exactly the way you do everything, which is if you can notice that, that's helpful, mm -hmm. or you're going to do it in a way that's new to you and therefore uncomfortable, and then maybe you'll get good at it. Or maybe the newness and, and uncomfortableness of it will make you stall again for a different reason. <laughs> yeah, yes, I guess that's true. But, you know, all the learning is, in the, in, is, in, is out of your comfort zone, right? That's true. So, that's what they say. Yeah, so, so actually being uncomfortable is a good thing. It means the project is going. And, and I guess that's why I don't, um, I don't get discouraged about it because I really see that if you're uncomfortable – then you're actually learning. This is the time when you're about to learn the most, as long as you can keep moving. Well, yeah, so you should always just keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep going in some direction. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sort of like when you start a project. I have three questions before someone starts a project. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and, and a lot of people call it, what's your story? But I tend to say... Um, what are you hoping that people will learn from this project? Others, what, what do you need to give to the world? Why do you think that, that this particular time and this particular place is, is the moment for this particular project? Mm -hmm. And that's a hard question to answer. I mean, the big question. I mean, it's easy in the, 
in the initial thing or you wouldn't want to do it at all. But if you take it farther as in you're not just talking about what you want to accomplish or what you want to say, but you're actually talking about what that, what the world needs in that message. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's harder. I mean, all of us struggle. I mean, every creator struggles with that. I'm sure you struggle with that all the time. <laughs> well, I, you know, I wonder because I think there's an art, you know, my daughter was taking a writing class uh, in college and she had a, there was a bit of a discussion in her class about this. And she called me later to discuss because we like to talk about these kinds of things. And it was about, uh, does it matter if your artwork or is ever seen does it or you know you're writing whatever it is does it matter if it's ever seen does it matter if anyone else takes it in when is the when does it come alive is it when you create it or when it's interpreted by someone else when someone looks at it or reads it or listens to it whatever it is and so theoretically art for art's sake or creativity for creative creativity's sake you don't need anyone to take it in so then how would you someone from that perspective even answer that question um well that's a different that's a different thing i mean i guess if they're working with me a client is not likely to be creating something for I, I, personally i think a uh, piece of art is useful even if it's only useful for the artist the right. artist is still growing and so my question my my comment you're you're growing for your own reasons and in your own space mm. but if you want to present this work to the public then you need to not only grow on your own, but you also need to give something for someone else to grow too. And so that's the difference. And actually gotcha. that's, that's a fascinating, I actually really like that conversation because I think it's important for someone to know what they want from a project. And if what they want to do is, is grow internally, maybe they actually do want to create art that they don't show. Well, I think of all the numerous projects, I mean, you know, writers, we, we write stuff all the time and probably I would safely say 94 to 6% of what we're writing never gets shown to anyone, right? It's just stuff that's just there. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, what, you know, um, all those artist papers, you know, the morning papers and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, people who write a journal or a diary, uh, the five-minute journal, this is a, we've rediscovered the art of writing in order to, to grow just because by writing something down, you can see, you can analyze your thoughts. Well, and, but even not even just, not even analyzing the thoughts, just putting it out there. Like, you know what I used to do all the time? And, uh, of course, in the last year and a half since moving has been extremely challenging to do. I would just find myself just jotting down the concepts and ideas and maybe even a, maybe even a chapter or so, you know, of something. And then I'd put it away and it would disappear. I wouldn't even know. I'd come across it, you know, months later. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I forgot I started this, you know, so the, you know, the, those little half finished snippets, um, little snippets of lines of poetry, those little pieces, I think they all serve some sort of purpose too, but I'm not sure if they're all going to have an external purpose. Although, you know, who knows, maybe after I'm dead, it, they'll all become wildly valuable and, <laughs> and, you know, someone will want my notes for some reason, you know, and it'll go up for auction at Christie's. But you, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's so much that I think we create, particularly as, as writers, um, that is never really for outside consumption but also isn't necessarily for analysis or or even it's just something we have to get out of our brains at that moment or off our hearts at that moment yeah no that definitely can be the case although I think even when you're doing that you're probably creating something um, uh, in your psyche that 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 helps you move forward so even if it wasn't something you actually uh, consciously analyzed I think it helps your subconscious deal with life you know, because otherwise yeah. you wouldn't want to do anything. Um, it's sort of like, uh, have you read about some of the artists uh, who have uh, used basically um, statements that they write down every day in order to grow confidence or, you know, the guy who writes Dilbert. I don't remember the name of him. He, he actually wrote, I am a cartoonist. I am a, uh, I 
think he said, I'm a, I make a lot of revenue as a cartoonist for years before he actually started selling his cartoons. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so it's like it, these, these uh, creations, whatever they are, because I don't limit it to writing. I think mm-hmm. that you could create on all sorts of levels, including even with your voice, right. you know, as a radio station. I love that we're doing this because to me it's like, when I was a kid, if you told me that I could just create a, a radio, have my own radio show or participate on someone else's radio show just with a computer that I can fit in the palm of my hand, I would have just, I, I would have, I would not have believed you. <laughs> well, I know. I would have thought it was science fiction. Uh, <laughs> like they let regular people do radio. What? Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, doing these kinds of creative outlets, I really think um, it is our participation in a bigger thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be shared now. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily, but, but I think it's more powerful if it is. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to connect to other people, but I think it helps you connect to other people, even if you don't share it, because you actually are um, sharing yourself with that. You are actually being a creative being, which in itself is important for yeah, connection and relationship. I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, if you, well, and I've been listening to a lot of Abraham Hicks lately, and... <laughs> So that concept of being a creative being is really resonating with me on that, on a lot of levels, you know, we, we are creating worlds, even as we, even as we do this podcast, right? Yeah, that's the whole point. We are, I mean, we've got a a Southern Belle and a a frozen Canadian uh, creating a new world. (laughs) And possibly more frozen than normal right now, (laughs) because... Uh, I hear it's supposed to be like negative 27 in Chicago and like negative, uh, I think they said negative 70 in, in Minnesota. So I, I don't know what this, I don't know what this is, man. <laughs> I just want you to stay warm. <laughs> yeah, no, we're very, we're very dependent on our heating <laughs> this time of the year. That's for sure. It's, uh, now mind you, when it's colder, at least it's dry. We had a period, um, not now, it's snowy here now, but it was a period of a, about a plus, uh, plus one, what would that be? 34 degrees, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then we had rain. And then, so of course, when it did get cold, it was all ice and we all had to have those funny little things on our feet to stick to the ice in order to walk around <laughs> and it's like that's much more uncomfortable than a day like today which is darn cold but at least you can walk <laughs> so are those the things that you see i mean they look like tennis rackets is that a real thing no there is a thing that looks like tennis rackets that's a snowshoe and the old-fashioned snowshoes look really like tennis rackets but i'm talking about just crampons they, they actually fit on your shoe you can't see oh. them but they they stick out so they they sort of point out downwards so they stick into the, the, the ice as you walk like spikes like like if you yeah. were doing track or something yeah it's actually like very much like a golf shoe it's a, a thing wow. that you put on your foot but the but the but the but the golf part is not rubber it's it's steel so that it goes into the ice Holy McMoley. All right. So note to self, don't go to Canada during the winter. <laughs> but then you'll miss the ice hotel. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I need that in my life, Tracy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no. And actually my, my son's godfather is from British Columbia. And so we used to laugh hysterically it, and it's terrible. It's just because we, we're very mean Southerners, obviously. <laughs> Russell would come to see us down in New Orleans you could see as soon as he got off the flight, he turned beet red, and we would just be cracking up because the heat was just killing him. We're like, this is the funniest thing we've ever seen in our lives. He literally turned red in the face the minute he exited the airport. <laughs> oh, I, I know exactly what you're feeling because you can't breathe. The air is so heavy, and, and it, I, I've experienced that myself. Uh, many red moments as I'm going from, in, from an airplane into a hot muggy place where my my nose won't work quite right (laughs) it's so it's just for us it's so normal but for him he must have felt like he was walking through water it was just it was it was terrible but yeah we laughed i'm sorry we're just very mean southerners (laughs) oh that's okay we do the same we do the same when you come up here with your like so-called coats 
Oh, I won't even tell you about how I almost froze in Iowa one time. Because, uh, yeah, I, I didn't even own a coat until I had to go to Iowa one winter. And then the coat was completely inadequate. It was it was sad, and I almost cried. I thought I was getting frostbite on my feet. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's just like, just buy your coat when you get here. It's like, this is not a coat. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not an option for just one day uh, on site of the clients, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can borrow one. I mean, <laughs> no, when I come to visit you, that's what I'll do. I'll borrow a coat. Well, actually, I'm going to just not come during the winter. We'll just make that our deal. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you come into town, I'll be happy to lend you a coat so you can see how it's actually fun to be here sometimes in the winter. Awesome. I want to try on the steel thing on my shoe. That. That just sounds like, I'm not sure how that'll fit on a California sketch or flip-flop, though. <laughs> no, I don't think it's going to fit on your flip-flops. Okay. <laughs> and besides okay. which, that your toes will freeze if you wear yeah. flip-flops. Okay, yeah. I figured but your running shoe, it'll fit, on, it'll fit on a pair of sketches. Okay, you see, yeah. And, and so we'll have to talk about that offline. <laughs> I'm way into being lazy. And that's something that I've learned um, in California. You oftentimes wear flip-flops year-round. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. Kind of wow. like being down south, only much more hippie-like. There are people who've worn Birkenstocks and socks here, but I'm not so sure it makes much of a sta- fashion statement. No, I think that's illegal in some states. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So. Tracy, we could sit here and do this all afternoon. I'm absolutely delighted. But share with us how folks can get in touch with you. They can get in touch with me by my website. It's um, www.tracyariel.com. And Tracy has an E-Y, so it's T-R-A-C-E-Y. And Ariel is A-R-I-A-L, just like an antenna. Cool. And what what, what services are you offering to folks uh, who want to create books and who want to get their messages out there? Well, actually, my services, I, I do done-for-you services, um, in whether you do want to do a book or whether you want to, the thing that's more popular with people tends to be my profile services, and I do a done-for-you service for that. And um, what a profile does is it's about a 2,000-word story, the way a journalist would write it, so it shows all your strengths, all your weaknesses, and then you can cut it, or you can pay me to cut it for your about page and your bio and your LinkedIn profile profile and all of the public communication that you take care of Um, because it's got your strengths and your weaknesses funders particularly like that and it's you know a one pager uh, for funders really works well so that's the profile me service that's probably the best thing that uh, people would appreciate very cool very cool very cool so guys you can catch up with tracy ariel at tracyariel.com t-r-a-c-e-y-a-r-i-a-l Dot com, and make sure you reach out to her. Can they get you on social media, Tracy? Yes, I'm on Twitter. I'm on, on, um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Actually, I'm creating a bunch of uh, fun posts for Instagram now. And I also actually have a YouTube channel, which I'm experimenting very badly. <laughs> every, every Sunday, I do like a little 20-minute thing about where I am in my creative social entrepreneur business, uh, just as a way to try and get used to that format, because I find it very uncomfortable. And um, so you can reach out me. I'm Tracy Ariel on all of those things. At Tracy Ariel on all social media outlets. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Tracy, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm so happy to have uh, spoken to you on the radio again. It's, it's really fun. Thank you very much. Next, we'll have a chat with Julia Black in our segment called True Talk. All right, so we are here with Julia Black and... True Talk. Hi, Julia. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you. Well, Julia, you and I uh, talked a while ago about this, and this came up in the previous interview. And one of the concepts is about feeling uncomfortable and how that's actually a good thing. And most of us most of us try to avoid feeling uncomfortable at all costs. It's well, because it's uncomfortable. Nobody, nobody <laughs> likes feeling uncomfortable, but that can be a really good thing for us. Right? Yeah, it can. 
It definitely can. So what kinds of things could feeling uncomfortable mean? I mean, what, what do you think feeling uncomfortable signifies? Well, it could signify quite a few things. Um, it could be um, something as simple as, um, you know, you, you're, you're doing something new and you're unsure of yourself. And so you don't know, you, you want to do well. Um, so it's that, in that sense, it would be a symbol that you're growing as a person and you're learning new things, which is always, a, which is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a clue. Uh, if, if it's something that you're, you kind of wake up one morning and you're not sure about, uh, you're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable and I don't know why. Um, that is more a clue that um, you're ready for some kind of a change or that there's something in your life or your environment that um, is triggering this feeling so that you stop and you deal with it. Um, And that's what typically happens, well, both of those cases are what happens, what has happened with me, particularly since I started my business. Um, I've lived in pretty much a state of being uncomfortable for the last year and a half. Um, (laughs) Well, and and when you start a big endeavor like that, you will yeah. feel uncomfortable. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, it doesn't have to growing. be. Yeah, you're totally growing. It doesn't even have to be, you know, starting your own business. It could be starting a new job. It could be moving to a new place. It could be something as simple as, you know, yeah, I'm moving down the street, um, but I've never lived anywhere else before, so I don't know how to do this. It could be anything. Right. Um, whatever puts you out of your comfort zone um, is what causes it being uncomfortable. Sometimes, um, you know, like when I was a kid and I was uncomfortable, it was always a trigger because I was that kid at school that was, um, teased and bullied. So, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I have butterflies and it was because I didn't know what was coming. So there's, there's that, there's that too. And if it's that, and you kind of know what the cause is, then there's obviously other things there to deal with. But when right. we, when we kind of wake up and we don't know the cause and we can't point to any kind of trauma or abuse or, you know, even something like falling, you know, you fall off a cliff, your leg's going to hurt, you're going to be uncomfortable. (laughs) Right. But this is going to happen. This is different because it it reminds me of when, you know, when my oldest was little, she used to get pains in her legs whenever she was growing. You you know, she would just, and at first, you know, I mean, this, I was a first time parent. I had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. And finally we figured out, oh, it's because she's growing and she actually is feeling it in her Mm -hmm. legs. And then we could figure out ways to comfort her. We could, you know, rub her legs, doing things to help her feel better. And so as long as you don't know, that's one of the first things you have to do is, is, well, first of all, you have to figure out if you're feeling uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, because sometimes are, it's, because sometimes it's super slight. Like for me, if I sit down to the computer in the morning and I am feeling, if I have a lot to do and I am feeling unmotivated to do anything, that to me is a clue that there is some emotion associated with all of the work that I'm about to do that I need to deal with. Yeah. 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 But there are other things too. You could, yeah. be, you know, you could be having your typical stress type things where you run mm-hmm. around like your hair is on fire right but it could be you're not sleeping as well like for yeah. me when I was uh going through my divorce I didn't sleep I, mm-hmm. I was a train wreck and that that was one of my yeah things where I was really uncomfortable it you could be you know not eating when not I was going eating. through my divorce I stopped yeah. eating feeling anxious, uh-huh. distracted, procrastinating. I'm a big procrastinator yeah. when um, I'm not in the right place mentally on something mm-hmm. when I'm uncomfortable with something. So there are a lot of different signs. You know how you respond to stress, right? Everybody knows how they respond to yeah. stress or hopefully you've done some self-examination and know how you respond to stress. But there's another reason you might be feeling uncomfortable. I think this is my feeling that sometimes spirit or God or your inner being, however you like to talk about these things, is really moving you to a new level, whether personally, professionally, you're being called to a higher level, to, to, to perform at a higher level, maybe to lead in some aspect of your life uh, or something like that. And that can make you feel really uncomfortable because all of a sudden 
you're in a new place in terms of your self-identity. You're, you're, you're losing some part of your existing self-identity that you're used to and moving to a new one where you have to be better, be stronger, be bigger, be, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're being called to act at a higher level and that can be really unnerving as well. Yeah. And most of the time when that happens, at least for me, I have a sense of what I'm supposed to do or being led to do or feel called to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I'm ignoring it. Um, I'm too busy to acknowledge it. Um, I am feeling too comfortable where you are and not comfortable where I'm at that I don't want to do that. Or it could, or it could be something as simple. Like when I, when I, um, I was ready, but when I left the corporate world, I was ready to do it and, and like had a deadline in my head of when I was going to give my notice a year before I actually did it. Um, and what it came down to for us was, was medical insurance is that I was on the other, my, my husband had gotten a new job and I thought that I was going to be able to go onto his insurance immediately. And I could, but the cost difference was so much that we, we wouldn't have been viable. So while I could have done it, I decided not to so that we could, because logically for us, financially for us, it made more sense for me to stay. Was I happy there that last year? No, I wasn't. Um, but um, because I was, I was reminded of the fact that it was time for me to go, but I knew at least at that point, what, what the issue was. Okay. The timing is just not right. And I'm saying that the timing is not right. And so that's okay. Um, right. Well, cause even when you're pushed or called or whatever it is by, even by spirit or God or your inner being, mm-hmm. you still have a choice. Yeah. It's not, it's not like you're, you know, you must do this, but ultimately whether it's because you personally are ready for a change, which in some ways is your inner being just saying, hey, right. it's time to make a change. Um, whether you're growing through something or, or you know, shifting personally, or you're being pushed to a higher level or a higher calling, you may have all of these feelings that you're, you're dealing with and maybe don't realize it, and so it manifests in all these different ways. What do you think are some ways that folks can, you know, if you had a few things you wanted to advise people, uh, how they could deal with it. Uh, I think the first thing is to acknowledge what's triggering you. Um, give yourself, give yourself the space to think about where this is coming from and to do it without judgment. So just look at it from, you know, take the, take the mile away view, take the big view and look at, okay, what is it in my life? Um, or what, did it, what is it about what's happening right now that is causing this? Um, acknowledgement, I think, is always the first thing. Um, and then as part of that, acknowledge what is different, what, is, what the trigger is. Like, what, what, is it in your body? Is it in your motivation? Is it, you know, is it pain? Is it being unmotivated? Is it being really tired? Is it Um, not being able to sleep? Is it not eating? What is it? So that you know for next time that this is a clue. Um, I think the second thing, once you have acknowledged that it's there and what's causing it, and sometimes it might be more than one thing, but once once you've acknowledged all of that, sit down and deal with all of those feelings. Find a way to find your path to dealing with it. And everybody's going to have different ways of doing it. Um, and to, as part of that, find ways to deal with the feelings while you're dealing with it. So I knew, for example, I knew when I started my own business that I was going to be in a constant state of anxiety for a while because it was stretching me to do things that I was very uncomfortable doing. I am not an extrovert. I am not one of those people that is super social. Um, I I am not good at being visible. <laughs> There's a, or I, I don't know if I'm not good at it as much as I was never comfortable with it. And so anytime I was going to have to go to a networking meeting or meet with a new client or go to a situation where there was going to be a lot of people, it was going to cause anxiety, which meant that I needed to up my game when it came to self-care. Mm. So... 
I do yoga regularly. I meditate regularly. Um, I make sure that I go on walks regularly. I do those things that I know are good for me to handle the anxiety. Um, because I knew going in that it wasn't, it's, it's not like I can just turn that off. Right. So you both, and so to, to summarize, you both need to deal with the feelings and then find or work through the feelings um, and then find a way to cope with the feelings as they're going on at the same time. And then um, the third thing, um, you know, just because you're moving to a new level, whenever there's some kind of uncomfort, whether it's because of a choice that you made yourself, because you were feeling led to do it by your higher power um, or your inner, your inner being, um, or because it was thrown on you, um, you know, a death of a family member or something like that. Um, have faith that the plan is going to work itself out. Um, yeah, sometimes you have to walk on faith before you see the path that's going to unfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the end, um, you know, it's gonna it's gonna move you to the level. It's gonna it's gonna move you to the level that you need to be at for the next stage of your life. Um, and it's never comfortable to do that. Puberty is not comfortable for a reason. High school is not comfortable for a reason. Um, college is not comfortable for a reason. <laughs> um, you know, the first two years of marriage are not comfortable, but um, once you get through them, then, you know, you, you, you're at a different level and things all of a sudden start working better. Well, I think that, um, as you were saying that, of course, I was thinking, <laughs> as you were saying that list, I was thinking, yeah, your first couple of months on a new job, you're, I'm, th <laughs> I'm thinking of all the other things that are also not yeah, no, yeah, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Of them. but oh, yeah. Um, the one thing I like to encourage people to do, and I think this is just because, because I'm a big proponent of, you know, you have all these wonderful tools that you have at your disposal. Please, please, please use them. Please take advantage of all these wonderful tools at your disposal to deal with stress and anxiety, but make sure that you're just being easy on yourself. That's mm -hmm. the one thing I think a lot of us, particularly here in the United States, we're not good at. We're not good at being easy on ourselves. We, we, we like to beat ourselves up for feeling a certain way or for not dealing with stress well or whatever it is. That, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We're very hard on ourselves. Just take it easy on yourself. Be forgiving of yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Be nice to yourself. You're a good person. Yeah. I mean, so, really... You know, yeah, no, definitely. And, and think about, you know, as you were, as you are dealing with all of this, think about how you would talk a friend through it or talk a family member through it mm -hmm. and talk to yourself that way. Yeah. Um, because, because you're right. We are absolutely harder on ourselves than we are on anybody else or most anybody else. Um, and you know, once I, that for me, once I realized that the hardest person, that the person that was making things the hardest, making all of this change the hardest was myself. Yeah. Um, there became a lot more self-talk and affirmations about, no, this is normal. You know, really when I stopped and I said, okay, if I were, if I were to talk my threat, my friend through this, how would I do it? And I talked to myself that way. And all of a sudden, everything was normal. Yep. You yes. know, there was no guilt. And, and, and in the long term, um, it, it's made me a lot less of a perfectionist, which has been really lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and that's good because there's no such thing as human perfection. Yeah, it's true. There's not. There's a strive. Um, there's, you can strive toward excellence, but perfection is probably not attainable. Yeah. Um, so that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, Julia, thank you so much for being on True Talk with me again. Thanks for having me. I love being here. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. 
Make sure you guys tune into the show on April 26, 2019, when Julia Black, copywriter, coach, and co-host of True Talk, will actually be my guest. You can find us every other Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the somewhereinthemiddlepodcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.